0: Matthew chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up, took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up that you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the interior of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and and paralytics, and he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. May God give us understanding this portion of scripture that we'll be preaching through this morning. You would remain standing with me. A word of prayer after prayer. Our choir, some music, God's word, and then also today communion together. Let's bow in a word of prayer. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to be here today. We even thank you for the rain today. The dark and dreary day um, does affect sometimes our our uh, our, our mental state. Um, But we keep our eyes on you, and we're thankful for all the blessings that you bring, including the rain that gives us water that we drastically need in this area. We thank you for each one here today. Thank you for those who you have brought back safely from travels that are here with us today, and we've been praying for them. We pray for uh, those who are away now on travel, that you would give them uh, safety as they return. We pray for those who have been sick or who are under medical care, who are having different procedures done or, or tests. Um, that, that's a number of us, Lord. And so we pray for each one that you would watch over, bless, that you would uh, cause us to, to uh, understand who you are. You are the one who supplies all of our needs. And we can look to you in faith and trust in you, whether you heal or not heal, uh, our bodies and our souls belong to you, and we can uh, we can rest assured, Lord, that you will bring us to that place, no matter what we do in these physical bodies. Um, you have prepared a place and a body for us when we leave this place, and so that we're thankful for. But while we remain, Lord, we suffer through pains. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, uh, not only to endure, but we pray we look to you for healing and for grace during this time. We think of Bonnie Dick and asking you for grace in her life. Lord, we are are thankful for the good news that we've heard of her condition being improving so that this week she may be able to leave the hospital and, and go to a, a, a place where she can receive a care uh, for herself. We pray, Lord, for her family, that they might be steadfast, that they might show the love of Christ to her. And we thank you for Bill for for uh, as a husband, as he has cared and continues to care for her. Um, we pray for um, uh, Sister Brenda, Lord, and that you would just watch over and be with her and yes. and uh, um, that her hope and faith might be in you, Lord. Thank you for her husband by her side, and pray, Lord, that you just continue to to work and encourage his heart as well. Um, we pray for those who have procedures coming up. We pray, Lord, that you would just watch over them. Um, And we just uh, um, thank you for your hand in our lives. Bless now the preaching of your word that it might stir our hearts, point us to Christ, and keep us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So far in Matthew, we have looked at the early life, early childhood of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist and then Jesus's baptism. And that baptism, we noticed the announcement that God the Father made from heaven that really started, uh, initiated Jesus's ministry. It was a voice from heaven to say, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased, it was announcing him to the world. John the Baptist, as a herald, as a voice, announced Jesus, but God the Father himself announced at that baptism, this is my son. You know, we're in that time of graduations, and I always marvel at parents who are so proud of their child or that student, when he graduates, he walks across the stage and the parents shout, even though sometimes they're not supposed to. They're supposed to wait to the end and clap. You know, we've changed the rules on all that, but proud parents announce, this is my child. Look at what he or she has accomplished. God the Father is, is, is like he's standing up in heaven and, and announcing that his son has arrived and he will accomplish the purpose for which the Father has sent him. And now we get into chapter 4. After that high, there comes a low. And that's, that's a lesson for our lives. Our lives are full of ups and downs. Even our Christian walk is full of that. I know some people tell you that as a Christian, you're to be filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that you're always on a high. That's just not the way life works and not even the way God works, is that we have ups and we have downs. In other words, we have times of, 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 of just excitement of what God is doing, and then we have times of testing. And this is Jesus in this time of testing. Look at him. It says then was Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. I struggled with that that first part because I think a lot of us struggle. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, lead us not into temptation. And yet we see the Holy Spirit himself leading Jesus right into this time of temptation, this time of testing. What is that? Well, God has a different purpose in our temptation or in our testing than Satan has in our temptation. Let me say it another way. God has a different purpose in testing us than Satan has in tempting us. God allows us to be tempted or tested for our glory, or for his glory, and for our building up. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as we go on. But Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tested. And notice, he had spent 40 days and 40 nights without eating. So he was hungry. His hunger lets us know that he was completely human like you and me. He, he, he experienced the same human things in his physical body that we would experience. And so that is, is why he is a testimony or example or a model for us in living the way God would have us to live. Now, we don't have the same purpose as Christ. Christ had a purpose is to live and to die to be our Savior. Our purpose is to glorify God in whatever way he would have us to do that. First of all, by trusting Christ as our Lord and Savior. God didn't call us to die on the cross for the sins of others, as Jesus did. He was tempted, excuse me, he was hungry, and so Satan came at him in the temptation. We're going to notice three temptations and uh, three things that Satan is is trying to do in these temptations. Let's look at them. He first of all says in verse 3, the tempter came. And, and first he's identified as devil, the devil, and then how he's identified as a tempter. We know that is true. Satan, the devil, is the tempter. James tells us that when we are tempted, it's not God who tempts us. It's Satan who tempts us to do evil, but God uses those testings to build us up. We're going to talk a little bit more uh, about that. So Satan comes and he says, if you are the son of God. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. There's an if, there's a conditional. In other words, Satan is always casting doubt on what God said. Remember the previous chapter? What did God the Father say? This is my beloved son. There's no doubt about it. So why does Satan come with if? He always wants to cast doubt on two things. On what God has said And who we are in God, what our fellowship and our relationship is in God. Now, sometimes God is challenging us so that those who are confident in who they are might be fearful and those who are fearful and doubtful might be confident. In like fact, I think that's the, the reason that First John was written. So those who, who, who aren't firm in who they are might become firm, knowing that when they know Christ and trust in Christ, they are secure in Christ. And there are others who think they're okay and haven't trusted in Christ, and they, they just think everything is cool. They, those are the ones who need to be doubtful, who need to be thinking and double-thinking about who they are and whether or not they are secure. As we step out on the streets on Saturday, we like to ask the question, if you were to die tonight, would you be 100% sure you go to heaven? I asked the man that yesterday, and he said, yeah, well, kind of. I said, well, I asked you if you're 100% sure. Kind of, maybe, if, don't quite get it. I told him, I said, isn't that something you want to really be sure about? Not doubtful? The Bible lets us know we can be 100% sure Because of who God is and what he's done through his son. Satan always tries to cast doubt on that. He casts doubt on what God said. If you are the son of God, then do this. There's no if about it. God has made it clear he is. And so we see in this first temptation, Jesus answered him by saying, it is written. And note what he says. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan is tempting Jesus, and he often tempts us this way, is to gratify our own desires. Jesus has a genuine desire. He has fasted for 40 days. He's hungry. But Satan wants him to gratify that desire in his own way. In other words, please himself to gratify himself. God wants us to to rely on him. That's why Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. Look, it's, it's not just, we are not to just try and satisfy ourselves, but trust God to satisfy us. Everything less than God will not satisfy I don't know why we don't learn that, because we we experience it over and over and over, whether it's food, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's drugs, all those things that we try to use to satisfy us, we find out that they don't. That's why we're always trying to go back and get it. People are still trying to go back and get their first high. And can't find it. Because there's nothing that can satisfy you except God. That's why Jesus says we don't live by just our physical desires, but we trust God to satisfy us completely. We don't live by our own desires. We don't allow our desire. Look, my body isn't to to, to tell me what to do when to eat and what to eat, I'm supposed to tell it. Now, we struggle with that. We struggle with that. Our desires are beginning to rule us and dictate to us what it is we do, how we think, and how we go about our day. Jesus is saying, let God rule in that. Now, is that an easy thing? No, in fact, it's impossible without God's strength. But we are to wake up each day and say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. God, satisfy me today. Allow me to to receive what you have and be content in what you have for me. To be satisfied with what it is you give me. You know, we we look at the other person and, and, and we want what they have. But Lord, help me be satisfied with what it is you have given me. Satisfied with my house, my living, my standard of living. Satisfied with the gifts that God has given me, the wife that God has given me, the family that God has given me, the finances that God has given me, the health that God has given me, the trust, the friends, everything that he's given me to be satisfied in him and what he's given me. Be content in what God has given me not to try to satisfy those desires on my own. The next step, it says, in verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. If, again, casting doubt on what God has said, and suggesting to Jesus that he should do this thing. Throw himself down. Why? It seems like a drastic thing to do, to be up on someplace high and to jump off the cliff. But his rationale was this. God's going to protect you. You know God's going to protect you, so go ahead and do it. That sounds like the rationale is like, I I, I know I'm saved, so even if I sin, I'm going to be all right. So, you know, just go ahead and do it. It's the rationale straight from Satan. The first one was self-satisfaction, the temptation for that. Here is what I would call self-mutilation. To destroy ourselves because God's got our back. Because God is going to protect us in some way. To, to, in other words, not take responsibility for ourselves and what we should do and how we should conduct ourselves and instead just throw it back on God. Satan always tempts us, or his temptation always will lead us to destruction. So he's tempting or he's suggesting to Jesus that he should jump off the cliff because God's going to save him. Jesus' answer was, again, it is written, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan had referred to scripture itself, and so he is smart in his attack. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. In other words, God said in his word that he'd protect you, and they'd watch out for you, and no harm will come to you. You know, we can take That's why when we take God's word, we need the the Holy Spirit's understanding of what it says and what it means. Because Satan will try to interpret God's word for us in order to tempt us. So he says, even if you jump off this cliff, the angels, they got you. They're going to protect you. And Jesus says to him, no, no, it's written, don't put God to the test. You don't sin or do wrong so that God might do something good. Now, God is able to take any situation and do as he pleases, but we don't throw ourselves willingly into that uh, with the mistaken belief that God is obligated to make it right now. The third thing, he says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Here's the temptation to bargain with Satan for mutual satisfaction. The devil is saying, look, you give me something, I'll give you something. If you give me your, your praise, your worship, and allegiance, I'll set you up strong. I'll set you up good. Now, some have argued does Satan have the power to do this. Apparently, he does. And I think if we look at the world, we will see that he is blessing a whole lot of people in physical ways. That's why people, you know, there's two things. That's one reason why they're not attracted to the life of God because it's a difficult life and it doesn't have all of those promises. I know we have believers who, who, who want to say this, name it, claim it, and, and uh, the prosperity gospel is something that we ought to pursue. Pro- prosperity gospel is, is basically pointed to attract people who are worldly minded into the gospel. But God doesn't work that way. He says, you're going to come to me, you're going to come to me for for, for who I am and trust me. Not thinking I'm going to give you some great blessing that you desire. God blesses. There's no question about that. Does God take care of his people all the time, 24-7? He does that all the time. Satan is saying to them in this temptation, if you do this, I'll set you up. I'll set you up. Look at Jesus' flat response to him. Be gone, Satan. Get out of here. Get out of here with that mess. He says, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus doesn't debate with Satan about whether or not he has the power to bring about what he's promised. I think he has some power to bring about some promises, and he can give. I think he's giving people different, uh, uh, I don't know if it's abilities. God gives them an ability, but he attempts them to use them to get glory by it. Um, But he says, "Just, just get out of here with that mess. Because God is the only one that I reserve my worship for. In Exodus, we saw that the Ten Commandments. The first thing God established was, you shall, you shall love the Lord your God. And you shall have no other gods before you. He is God alone. What other gods do? are you tempted to have in your life? We're always tempted. And they may even bring some benefit us Satan's going to make sure that's the case but his benefits are short-lived. They're there. they shine like glitter but they only last a short time. If we have the choice in living at the top in this world for a short time, maybe it's 70 years, maybe it's 80 years, maybe it's 90, maybe even a hundred. What's those hundred years compared to the choice of living under the submission of God and living forever in his kingdom? Living forever for what he blesses us with. So Jesus didn't take that either. He says, it's the Lord that we are to worship in him alone. Notice the next verse. Verse 11. Then the devil left him. He was defeated. He had no hold on Jesus. There is a fight. There is a battle that we have with Satan, and when we resist in God's power, we are victorious over that. Now, we live in this world, so temptation is a part of this life. We will never uh, um, be in a clear and never be free from temptation as long as we live and breathe here. And that's something I think we as Christians need to understand. Some Christians think that they become in some way super Christians and they no longer are even resisted, uh, even tempted by sin. That is is simply not the case. 1 John makes it clear. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. In other words, if we're not working in this sin environment, We're lying to ourselves. It's all around us. We're going to be tempted all the time. That's one of the reasons why I say this attitude of, Lord, take the taste of this out of my mouth. is almost like saying, Lord, help me never ever to be tempted again. That's just not going to happen. You live in a sin-filled world. You're going to face sin and temptation all the time. God wants you to face it in His strength and be victorious. Notice after Satan left him, The angels ministered to him. How important is this? That's why you're here today, to have the fellowship of God's people so that you can be encouraged in your struggle. You came here, some of us came here down, just kind of like the weather outside. And and there is a fellowship that we need that, that lights us up that keeps us going, that encourages us on our way. Satan, excuse me, the, uh, God sent angels there to minister to Jesus after this time. I don't know what they did to minister, but in my mind, they, 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 they bought some bread and they bought some fish and they, they, they had a little cookout because he hadn't eaten in a long time. And they reminded him of the truth. So there's a physical, I think, and then a spiritual part of that. And we do that as well. There's a spiritual part of encouraging one another. There's a physical of wrapping your arm or patting somebody on the back or giving them something that they need that just encourages them that God is still working in their lives. God ministers to us. But the the truth is is that this is after the victory. This is after the battle. And the battle has, has been won successfully. And now God sends those ministering angels to to take care of his son. Let's get into the next part of chapter 4. It says, verse 12, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Stop there. It's an important part of, of the gospel here. We're getting the life and the story of Jesus. So what we're going to see is some of the things that Jesus did and some of the things that he taught or that he said. And here we understand um, how the arresting of John the Baptist affected him. We, we, were heard, we heard a little bit about the story of John the Baptist, but now in the very next chapter, we hear that he has now been arrested. And we won't hear from him for a while in Matthew. But it has affected Jesus. He was the forerunner for Jesus and now he's arrested and says Jesus after that withdrew into Galilee. In other words, there was a sense where he 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 he, he couldn't be in certain places and and being an open attack, he had to be in the area of Galilee. If you look at the map, you see Jerusalem down here and Galilee up here, about, I don't know, 70 miles or so apart. There's a good distance apart. And up in Galilee is this pear-shaped sea of the Sea of Galilee. So this whole region is called the region of Galilee. This is where Jesus spent most of his time. And then the Bible gives us the reason for why he was from there. It says in verse 13, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region of the sh- of in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus lived in that area to fulfill what the Old Testament said: is that this Messiah will come and live in the darkest area, and be a light and a testimony there. Can I make a personal application? That's why we're in Milwaukee. Amen. To be a light and a testimony. Folks around the, all, all around the United States saying, man, I heard a lot of things about Milwaukee, and most of them ain't good. That's why the gospel is here in you and in me, so that in a dark area, we can be a testimony and a light. Are you up to it? Are you up to it? So that we can be a testimony. You don't have to go far to, to see why the gospel is needed. Do do you see that every day if your eyes are open? Yeah, you see it all the time. The way people drive, the way people act, the way they look, the way they dress, the way they don't dress. All these things show us that the gospel is desperately needed in this region. We need a light. We need a light to shine. I get to the point where I'm driving my car and stop at a stop sign. I'm glad I got air conditioning and power windows. I can put the windows up and let the air, because the, the music, what they call music, the, the attack on my soul when I hear words and profanity and, and, and names called, that, that just, it, it's sad. I was riding the other day, I was riding by the lake, and I saw a woman that was, um, I, won't you, <laughs> I won't say her exact shape, but I can tell you what she had on. It's a thong, and that's all on the bottom that she had on. And she was parading around, and other people were cheering her on, and she would stop and do a twerk dance, and everybody was clapping and cheering. And I'm like, is this for real? Is this in Milwaukee at our lakefront? Yes, it is. That's where we live. That's what we see every day. We need a light. We need a testimony. In the middle of this city, in Milwaukee, we need a great light. We are really simply reflectors of that great light. Jesus is that light. But we ought to reflect that glory as we get an opportunity to talk with people. In This next section, it says this. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does that sound familiar? Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Verse 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same gospel, folks. It's the same gospel we preached last week, that, that John the Baptist preached this gospel, that God's judgment is come. His king is coming, and you need to get ready. Jesus is preaching that same gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you notice the first word there? It's repent. It's like the Jews did not hear that message. What they heard in the message is the Messiah is come at last. We're going to rule now. I remember a candidate, it was a black candidate for a mayoral office here in Milwaukee. His whole slogan was, it's time. It's time. You knew what it meant. What he meant was, it's time for black folks to rule. It's time for black folks to sit in city hall and rule. It's time. His whole thing was, it's time. Really. It's time. Jesus' message isn't to the people who were looking for that message of, it's time for us to reach our place of dominance. His message was repent. His message was to sinners to acknowledge how far they have strayed from God and come running back to him. That's why John baptized. And when people came to this baptism, he said, wait a minute. I don't know. You sure he repent? Show me something. Show me what's real in your life that you really are turning from sin. If, if not, get out of here. We don't want you. We don't need you. You aren't doing no good getting yourself wet in the water. Come with true repentance. The message was saying from Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, we cannot be a part of the kingdom of heaven just as we are in our sinfulness. God is too gracious for that. That, you know, we have people today just say, hey, just bring your mess, come into God like you are, and leave as you are. Come into him with all your mess, and he's okay with it. The, the implication is he's okay with that. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is repent, turn from sin, and turn to God. Next part of this chapter says this. Uh, Walking by the Sea of Galilee, you notice now he's in that area in Galilee. In fact, most of Matthew happens in that place until he comes down to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. Most of his action is in this area of Galilee. Walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. They were fishermen. Peter and Andrew. He comes to the common, everyday, hard-working man. And he calls two of these men. And he says to them, follow me. And I'll turn you from fishing for fish to fishing for men. I'm going to turn your life around so that you are speaking to others and drawing them. Will you're drawing them too. You're drawing them to Jesus drawing them to Jesus. You're turning them from seeing their whole life being around their job and they're they're taking care of themselves. You know, I fish because I need this money to take care of my food, to take care of my family, to buy food, to have a place to live. God knows all that, but that shouldn't be your main existence in life. Your main existence is To honor God in what you do. Now, you can be a fisherman and still honor God. It's your motivation, your purpose behind what you do. He says, I'm going to turn your motivation around to just getting by to pleasing God, glorifying God. Be a fisher of men. Notice how they responded. We have two brothers, two sets of brothers here. We have Peter... And Andrew, then we have James and John, both were fishermen, all four of them. It says in verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. for the same response, verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Immediately. You don't have to procrastinate when it comes to turning to Christ. God is calling you to serve Him and to do that right now. Don't make any excuses. In the the case with James and John, it says they left their father, Zebedee, in a boat. They left all that they had, and they began, in other words, they didn't worry about how they were going to piece it all together and work it out. They just simply followed Jesus. Now, this was a very practical way. Jesus was, it was clear what he was doing and what he was calling them to be his followers, to be his disciples, because he was the one John said he was. They didn't know what all that meant, but they knew they were following the, 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 the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, and they committed to him. You are to commit to Christ today not procrastinate, not half-heartedly, but to follow him. After all, he's given you life, he's given you spiritual life. What little he asks of us is simply to honor him with the life that he gave us, with the energy that he gave us, with the resources that he gave us, is to simply offer them back to him in service. And they did that. Then the last of this chapter, says he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his his fame spread throughout all Syria. You look on a map, Syria is a huge area north of Palestine in that area. His His fame spread abroad. People were hearing. By then, you imagine, it was word of mouth that was just spreading about who this Jesus is but he was somewhat unusual. He was healing sick. He, 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 he was, he was uh, uh, healing them of diseases. He was taking those who had been possessed and under Satan's control and freeing them from that control. In fact, uh, we're going to see more as Matthew unfolds of what it is he did that proved who he was. And that evidence is still for us today to see who Jesus is based on what he has done and what he continues to do. In the next chapter, next three chapters, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching. Because the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, and we're going to, to look at that chapter by chapter. We'll see what his teaching tells us, and then after that we get back again to his life, what his life shows us of, of who he is and what he has done. It says in verse 24, 625, it says, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This whole general area was, was naturally um, just taken with him. That's a natural thing to do. But there are four in this chapter who wholeheartedly followed him. Now, Uniquely, he called them to a different place than even other followers might be. But we see their commitment and their devotion and their obedience. And it was immediate that they opened their hearts to God and followed this man, the Son of God, Jesus. Will you follow him? Will you commit to him today? Will you give yourself wholeheartedly to him? What are you waiting for? What else needs to be said? What else needs to be done? Nothing. Jesus simply says to you, come, follow me and take on my purpose. I'll make you not any more fishers of fish, but fishers of men. You will take on my burden, my mission my purpose. That's what God is calling us today. Father, we thank you for your son. Satan brings doubt or tries to shed, uh, shed doubt on who he is. He truly is your son, the son of God. He's come for the purpose that you have sent, and now as he calls individuals to himself, we see their response. He's still calling today those who would follow Jesus. We don't all have the same gift. We don't all have the same responsibility as these four apostles and disciples had. But the calling by you is the same, to repent and prepare ourselves for your kingdom, to let your kingdom rule in our lives, to be obedient to you in whatever you called us to do, to be lights for you everywhere that you send us. I pray, Lord, that you move in hearts today, right now, to turn to you, to trust in you, to forsake their sin and their past sinful lifestyle and turn wholeheartedly to you. Now, Lord, as we prepare for communion, do that work in our hearts that makes us grateful and thankful for what you have done for us. Bless us now as we prepare communion for Christ's sake. Today is the first communion for our new deacons. I'm going to ask them to come and all our leadership team to come as we prepare for communion today. Charles and Nick are joining us, as well as Lawrence and Andy and Cliff and Brian. I'm going to ask somebody who can take a picture for us before we get started. You can do it just with your phone. We can draw in a little closer, men. Step on in towards the center. This is a historic event in Sweet Cavillium, and I want to record it. So Patty's going to take a few pictures for us. Thank you. Make sure your husband is in it. Where is he? All right. All right, thank you, thank you. It is historic. We are here um, to to join in communion. We want to prepare our hearts for this service, for this worship of God. We understand what it means. We understand who it's for. What does it mean? It means that I am thankful for Christ saving me. I've trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. I realize that his body has been sent from heaven he has been sent from heaven with a human body he's paid the price for my sin on the cross by dying shedding his blood on the cross to pay for my sin and i simply say thank you lord in communion as i do that if you can identify with that you can receive communion if your heart if you are a believer if your heart is right if you are walking in obedience to god some of those practical steps we've asked is that you be a part, and connected with the church. You're not a member here wanting to become a member, not just wandering from place to place, but want to settle down and be faithful to God in that place. So we invite you to be a part of communion. If you are a believer and not in fellowship with God because of some unconfessed sin in your life, you shouldn't take communion today. You should get that right with God and then take communion maybe you have a conflict that needs to be resolved it could be with a spouse it could be a loved one it could be a neighbor that you know that you have done wrong and that you need to get right before you can come and worship God we invite you to do that before communion if you haven't done it already and need to do that before communion then don't take communion today get it right and come back at the next time and take communion So I hope the message is clear here. Communion is for believers, believers only. Communion is for believers who are walking in obedience to God and desire to obey God in all their their lives. We're going to pause for a word of prayer as we examine ourselves, we get ourselves ready for this service, and then I'm going to ask Elder Brian if he would lead us in prayer. In preparation for our communion today. So let's pause for a silent word of prayer.
1: Dear Lord, I thank you, Lord. I just thank you, Lord, for doing so much for us and in this church, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for saving our souls, Lord. We thank you for bringing us the good word this morning, Lord. We thank you for the praise time we share. We thank you for your Holy Spirit empowering us to do all those things. But, Lord, we come before you, Lord, and we just want to confess our sins, Lord. We are all sinners, Lord. Nobody in here is somebody who you didn't die for. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord, and confess our sins, Lord, because you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that means, Lord, that you are faithful to keep your word, but you are just in that there is still a penalty for that sin, and that penalty was laid on your son, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that we will confess our sins before you today. If there's anybody in here who has something against their brother, Lord, or some preconceived idea that they want to do that they know is wrong, or thoughts that they're holding on that they know is wrong, Lord, or they refusing to do what you told them to do, whether that be tithing, whether that be attending, whether that be loving their brother or sister, Lord, that you would have them lay aside that sin and confess that sin. Lord, help us to not be too prideful, Lord, when we put on a facade, Lord. Or we be prideful and not want to admit our wrong. Or be prideful and not want to admit our wrong to our brother or sister. I pray, Lord, that you would have us be humble, Lord. You cast down the proud, but you lift up the humble. So I pray, Lord, that you would have us be humble before you, Lord. That's all of us, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, for just bringing us to this point, Lord, we understand your word. So I pray, Lord, that you would confess our sins. And, Lord, if there's any sins in here, that sometimes we just so ignorant, Lord, we don't even know that we have sinned against you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would just overlook those sins, Lord, with your grace. Sometimes we just do wrong. We don't even know, Lord, but you are so gracious to us, Lord. You do not cast us down immediately. You work with us, Lord. So I pray that you just continue to work with us and be continue to be patient with us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to pray for
0: of our of our, um, of our communion. Pray for the cracker the wafer that represents Jesus' body. I'm we'll going ask Cliff if you pray God's blessing on that. And then Lawrence, if you would pray for the um, juice that represents Jesus' blood.
1: Heavenly Father, Lord, thanking you for this day, Lord, that we commemorate your death on the cross for our sins, Lord. As we uh, partake in your table today, Lord. We ask your blessing today on the wafer that represents your body that was beaten and sacrificed for us. Lord, And we understand that it doesn't mean anything magical, mystical, focus, but it's just our remembrance of what you did on Calvary's cross. So bless our wafer right now. For Christ's sake. Amen. amen. Lord, we just come before you today, just thanking you for the juice and the representation of the blood that was shed for the remission of our sins, Lord. Um, it was blood that is worthy that was shed for the unworthy, Lord, and I pray amen. that you help us to remember that as we take this cup today. Um, we just thank you um, for the sacrifice that your son did for us on the cross of Calvary, Lord, and I pray that we would not take it in an unworthy manner today. In Jesus' name, my friend. amen.
0: Here's how we'll proceed. We're going to ask our, our um, deacons, if they would start in the back row, we want you to come along the side aisle. And if you're not going to take communion, just walk and just continue through to, to your seat. If you're going to take communion, here it is, here, take, you just need, um, you just need one cup. Everything is in that one cup. Take it back to your seat and then wait for us to do everything together. So, men, would you guide from the back and um, as you come along the side aisles, you return to your seat through the center aisle. Has everyone received that wishes to receive communion today? All right. You can open that top seal. I hold in my hand a wafer that represents Jesus' body. God sent his son down from heaven to become a human being, one without sin. He lived a sinless life. He he was approved by God as we read in chapter 3 of Matthew, and he proved himself to be consistent with all that scripture was written about him so that he might be our Savior. We worship our Savior today as we thank him for the sacrifice that he's made for us. Let's eat together. And if you would open that next seal. This juice represents Jesus' blood. It was necessary that he be brutally beaten and killed for our sin. That's the price that God demanded for my sin. serious thing isn't it and God demanded his death of his sinless son for my sin Sunday school class has been going through 2nd Corinthians in chapter 5 verse 21 says he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him God the Father made his son to take on our sin so that our sin will be removed from us and put on Jesus and that his righteousness might be put on us so that we be acceptable before God worship Christ together as we drink it's a blessing to serve with this group of men added to this group these two men Charles and Nick thank God for you men as well as the men who have served for several years in this capacity with Lawrence, Andy and Cliff and Brian and um, they are your leaders, they are examples to you, they have a responsibility of living a life to please God and to um, be a model and example to love and to care for their families, to worship and to serve God And I thank God that they are doing that. None of us in this room or standing before you are perfect, including myself. None of us are perfect. but We have a desire to obey God. We want you to pray for us that we will be faithful in that appointment that God has called us to, and we would do the things that God would have us to do. I'm going to ask someone who would like to pray for us and close our service, if you would stand. In prayer. I'm going to pick that person today. Dale, would you stand and pray for us and close our service? Thank you.